The following podcast is brought to you by the BICBP Radio Network. To another episode of How Bizarre. I'm one of your co-hosts, Chris Chavez, joined by the lovely, talented <laughs> Aaron Chavez. That's right. You knew it. That's why you said your name. You knew <laughs> I was talking about you. Well, you pointed at me, so that helped. <laughs> also, and I'm no the only one in the room. <laughs> or are you? Do, do, do. Save that for your creeper ones. Oh, oh, that's right. This is how bizarre. This isn't uh history creeps. This isn't that's odd. Uh welcome back, guys. We're back. For another episode, episode three, this will be... Are you sure it's four? Oh, it is four. We had this debate last time. It was, yes. (laughs) Episode four. Um, This is going to be fun. I have one that I think you're just going to... You're going to be like, what the fuck? I can't wait to hear it. Seriously. Um, Before we get into it, so guys, at the beginning of History Creeps, we do Current Creeps. At the beginning of That's Odd, we do Now That's Odd, and... For how bizarre we when we have like news headlines, we were gonna do now bizarre, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Except we don't have a headline. But uh, Aaron, you were saying that you learned something new, something bizarre, and I you did. wanted to share it. So what we're gonna call this segment is "Tell Me Something Bizarre," <laughs> and I will. What is I it? told you this a couple weeks ago, but I 100% know you were not paying attention to me. <laughs> so I saved it for the day. Wait where a second, you're what, a force. What was going right? on? What's what always going, going on? You're attention? on your phone. I was on my phone. I'm sure of it. Was I on uh, Twitter? I, I have Instagram? no idea what you're on. Wrestling. wrestling <laughs> I don't know. History creeps. It, research. No. I don't think it was that. How bizarre research? I don't think it was that. I think it was something really stupid and pointless and meaningless. But Obviously. That's just or my opinion. Or else I wouldn't have been on it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What did you find? Tell me something bizarre. So like, this isn't new. Obviously, this every, probably everybody already knows this. But I just learned this. John Tyler... He is the 10th president. He was the 10th president of the United States. First of all, I know you, you I see on, the recognition. <laughs> no, before you move on, you're like, uh, I'm sure everybody knows this. I didn't even know we had a, 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 a president named John Tyler. <laughs> That's exactly what you said when I told you this before, but you didn't hear the rest. I know you didn't I, hear the rest. See, I do remember this part. Okay, then tell remember, me the rest. No, no, you don't no. Know it. I'm just telling you, I remember saying that. <laughs> and that's why I'm making the point to say it again, is okay. that I really feel like. I don't think that's something. This isn't common knowledge. Like I, I really would, be, unless you're like into the the presidents or into uh, you know political history. I can't. I mean, uh, dude, right. I, I, I'd be it'd be hard pressed to count on how many times I've I, I've I've heard somebody say John Tyler's my favorite president. Well, obviously, no one says that. He's not a big one. <laughs> what number was he? Twelve. Tenth. Tenth. So he was see, like- I couldn't even get the number right. You already said it. <laughs> that's how forgettable he is. So do you know that was like a long time ago? Yeah. Okay, because yeah, Abraham yeah, yeah. Lincoln was the 16th. Yeah, okay. okay. So he still has two living grandchildren. Wait, not grandchildren. Yes, grandchildren. Wait. Yes. How is that? When was he born? <laughs> what year was he bizarre. born? very bizarre. Okay, let me look up all the Yeah, how does this work? You. Wait. <laughs> he was born in 1790. And he still has grand... Wait, I guess that... What? How old do these people live in the Tyler family? 
Well, also they they had kids very late in life, second marriages. Okay, that's how it happened. Oh, okay. But still, isn't that insane? And he's got grand so grandchildren. Three generations of the of his family has spanned the entire U.S. history. Think about that, because he was born one year after Washington was sworn into office, and his Holy two grandchildren crap. are still alive today for Trump. Dude, that's insane. That's crazy. That is crazy. And they're how old are they? How old are the grandchildren? Old, 89 or something. Ooh, they might see a different president or not. But still, that's a crazy thing to think that they're going to live to see another presidential term even. Right. Wow. And apparently the Sherwood Forest Plantation where President Tyler renovated with his his uh, second wife in mind, it they still live there, the grandson, and they say the house is haunted. Ooh. They showed us a spot on the wall where you can see what looks like a young woman. So they say that was the, the second wife. Okay, yeah. gonna have to fu- you're gonna have to bring that up later on history <laughs> creeps. That's crazy That's just cool. A side note. I bet you Johnny's gonna like that little piece of tidbit knowledge. He likes he history likes and presidential things like that. Well, Abraham Lincoln. I know he likes. Abraham <laughs> I know Lincoln. he likes Abraham Lincoln. He brings that up. It feels like everybody likes Abraham Every- Lincoln. That's everyone's favorite, problem. right? That's what I said. In fact, when I was, was it because he lived in a log cabin? You think that's what like the the you draw think when you're a kid? He lived in a log cabin. Wait, didn't you think he? That's where Lincoln he... logs come from. No, 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 <laughs> no. But wasn't he born in a log cabin? Wasn't that the thing? I remember that, but that's like Washington with a cherry tree. Is that was... real? Okay, look, I really was going to say something about Lincoln Logs. (laughs) Isn't that what those are? Aren't they from Abraham Lincoln days? Like, that's why they call them Lincoln Logs? Johnny, (laughs) please look this up. (laughs) When I was listening to to That's Odd the other day and Johnny said that Lincoln was his favorite president, I literally said out loud, well, that's everyone's favorite president. (laughs) You're so funny. But mine's FDR, actually. All righty. So, um... Okay, well, that's actually a really cool, bizarre little tidbit of knowledge. I did not know that. Um, and again, I really don't think many people would have known that. I so saw it in like a meme from like 2015. That's why I thought, I'm really out of this that I did not know this. But good, I'm <laughs> so glad I'm not the only one. So probably dead right now. Or did oh, you no, look no, up I looked up recent now? articles. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right, we're going to get into our bizarre stories today. So I'm going to go first because mine takes place earlier. We're going to go chronologically, okay? Okay. And then Sounds you're going to bring us into the future. Well, not the future, but... I'm going to tell you the story of Carl Tanzler or Carl Tanzler von Kossel. I say or because it depends on where you're looking for his name. So he was born uh, Carl Tanzler, but I'm sorry, he was born George Carl Tanzler. uh, And that's exactly how his German marriage certificate states his name. Um, his U.S. citizenship papers say Carl Tanzler von Kossel, and his Florida death certificate says Carl Tanzler. And there are hospital records with his signature um, signed Count Carl Tanzler von Kassel. Kossel. Kossel. Born February 8th, 1877 in Dresden, Germany. Uh, was Carl Tanzler. He was born in Dresden, Germany. There was nothing too remarkable about his childhood, except Tanzler would claim that as a child, and a few times on his travels as an adult, he had visions of a dead ancestor who would show him the face of a beautiful, dark-haired woman and proceed to tell him that this was the face of his one true love. Hmm. Okay. 
Mm-hmm. Most of his early adult life, he traveled finding interests in different things, engineering, electrical work, uh, architecture, sailboats, medicine. Um, sometime before the outbreak of the Great War, World War I, he, he ended up in Australia in, during his travels uh, with the intention to continue to the South, uh, South Sea Islands. When war broke out, he was taken into custody by the British military and placed in containment camps. Uh, much like the U.S. did to j- the Japanese mm-hmm. during World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, but during World War I in Australia, Germans, um, Indians, and uh, I can't remember. It was another uh, another nation. They were basically uh, all gathered up and put into di- different containment camps throughout Australia. After the war ended, he was shipped to Holland. Uh, from there, he went back to Germany to check on his mother, um, and while he was there, he saw the destruction of war and, you know, his mother said, look, you should you should move to America. Uh, but before he did, he ended up getting married. He married a woman named Doris, had two children, one of which died of diphtheria. Was Doris the woman <clears throat> from his dream? No, I didn't think so. <laughs> you don't know the story, do you? No. OK. In 1926, he sailed from Germany to Havana, Cuba, and then to Zephyr Hills, Florida. Zephyr Hills. Yes. That's a terrible place to end up. <laughs> Months later, his wife and children followed. Uh, so his child hadn't died yet. The child ended up dying in Florida of the theory. Uh, in 1927, he left his family in Zephyr Hills so that he could take a job in Key West at the U.S. Marine Hospital as a radiology tech. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> this is where it's going to get fun. <laughs> April 1930, uh, while working at a hospital, a tw- while working at the hospital, a 21-year-old local Cuban-American woman is admitted for symptoms of tuberculosis. There she is. This woman is Maria Elena Milagro de Hoyos. The moment 53-year-old Tanzler lays eyes on her, he knows this is the woman from his dreams. How bizarre! From the visions. Tanzler convinced her family that he had he had enough medical training and knowledge to help cure her. Oh gosh. Okay. You're talking 1930s tuberculosis. Okay. And he's We're just coming a back tech. to this. He tried all kinds of medicines and therapies. Uh, he did different kinds of research, read books, did, tried to find all of the different writings they had, current writings they could have on this disease that was just ravaging the country, right? And, and what can, you know, what was working? Uh, well, he, he tried everything. The whole time, he's giving her all kinds of gifts, little compliments, uh, and he ultimately ends up professing his love for her. <sighs> I mean, she was, after all, the woman of his dreams. <laughs> okay? Except she wasn't feeling it. I'm sure she wasn't. She was expecting a doctor to cure her of a disease uh, that at the time, when you get this diagnosis, it's right. basically a it's death terminal, sentence. Yeah. You're done. You're fucked. Uh, and Instead because she's got to deal with this creepy old dude <laughs> and because he wasn't a real doctor, she died October of the following year. Oh God. That's like the case of me too gone really awry. Like this is a worst case scenario. <laughs> it gets worse. Oh, it can't. Tanzler paid for the funeral and told the mourning family that he intended on having a mausoleum built for her remains, which he did in Key West Cemetery. Over the next two years, he visited the mausoleum every night. Mm. 
No, is his he wife would and sing kids to still her. in Zephyr Hills, or have they followed? You'll see. Okay, okay. He would sing to her at night. People walking by would see this, right? Oh, this so many of the locals felt bad for this quote-unquote heartbroken romantic. Stalker. Right? Is okay. Right Two years, bro. And okay. He didn't even know her. Two years. And then he would later claim, I'm gonna I want to put this out there. He would later claim that while he was out there singing to her, her spirit would visit him. Yeah, probably to tell to him, him to fuck off. Um so yeah, many people would see him, you know, in the evenings out there and think of him as a heartbroken romantic. Uh that's because they didn't know what he was up to. He was working on preserving her body. Oh, now we're getting to necrophilia. In nineteen in April of nineteen thirty three, three years after he had laid eyes on her, and two years after her death, he snuck her body out of the mausoleum oh, under God. the cover of night, transporting her in a toy wagon <clears throat> to his home. Once there, and over the next few months, he got to work reinforcing her limbs with wires. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I can't take this right Inserting now. Inserting glass eyes. Cloth, oh. He used cloths soaked in wax and plaster to re- replace flesh and then her wig of her hair. So her mom ended up gathering a bunch of her hair and gave it to him when she died. I don't know why. Was that like a custom in the Cuban thing or something? I don't know. Never to heard To give of it that. to the random stalker? Well, this guy that was taking care <laughs> of her. Maybe he was saying, you know, they, he, during the embalming, he would help with whatever. I don't know. But he used that to make a wig. He stuffed her body with rags and dressed her in stockings, jewelry, gloves, and dresses. And he also had uh, tons of perfume he would use. You'd have to. He lived with her over the next seven years. Oh, my. Cooking for her, singing to her, dancing with her, and even sleeping in the same bed. Rumors began swirling around town as the people noticed that Tanzler kept buying women's clothing, perfumes, jewelry, and some even noticing their silhouettes of two people dancing in his windows at night. They thought, great, right? How it's so good that he's finally moving on. They felt happy for him because for so long they saw this like heartbroken romantic. Poor guy. How could, you know, he fell in love and he was taking care of his real family, huh? In October of 1940, after hearing rumors, one of Maria's sisters decided to pay Tanzler a visit, only to find him living with the corpse. Oh, my gosh. Tanzler was immediately arrested. After a psychiatric evaluation, he was deemed mentally competent to stand trial. However, the case was dropped because the statute of limitations on the charge of, quote, wantonly and maliciously destroying a grave and removing a body without authorization, unquote, had expired. Oh, my gosh. He lived with I that body I want to throw so this long. out there. This is the statute. Wantonly and maliciously <laughs> destroying a grave and removing a body without authorization. So that means there are times when you are authorized to wantonly and maliciously destroy <laughs> a grave or remove a body. I was going to say when you're exhuming a body, but that's not maliciously or wantonly. All right, you ready for this? Yeah. Here's the kicker. There's more. After the charges were dropped, the community felt bad for the guy. They still looked at him as a, a, an eccentric romantic. No. He was accepted in the community. They felt bad. Like, literally, when old ladies would see him and be like, oh, 
Oh, Mr. Tanzler, how are you today? That is disgusting. You ready for kicker number two? There's another one? Okay. In 1944, he moves to Pasco County. It's near Zephyr Hills. His home is near his wife. Yes, he's still married. <laughs> who apparently helps support him later through life. What the? You ready for does kicker know, number three? Does she know about the corpse? I am fucking sure this was headline news. This oh was national gosh. news. Are you ready for kicker number three? Okay. This is it. It's going to hurt. Having been heartbroken that he was taken away from the love of his life, he used a death mask to create a life-size effigy of Maria that he lived with until he died in 1952 at the age of 75, while his wife still helped support him. Oh, my gosh. Boom. There's your how bizarre the story of Carl Tanzler, Cosell, Count, whatever you want to call him. He's got Carl Tanzler. Right? Wow. Right? That's insanity. Right? Yes. <laughs> I. What? What are your thoughts? What's swirling through your head? I have no clue like how he explained to his wife any of this because I, I found a lot of different stories and a lot of them recount the same things kind of in the same order. Some right. of them add little flares where I start to – because some of them said that there was necrophilia, but there's nothing to prove it. Uh, some people said that he actually ended up switching the effigy and the real body because the, the body ended up – oh, here's the fucking weird thing too. Not only did the people feel bad for this guy after the charges were dropped, they were, they wanted to see what it looked like. They were so fascinated. This thing was put on display behind a glass case for like a year. Oh my god! Almost gosh. a year, at like in like Poor the, the, the family. city hall or some shit like that, right? Right. So they ended up reburying her, but in an unmarked grave, so nobody would fuck with it. But the, there was a belief that, and again, this is one of the things I read, and and so I don't. If I don't find enough of it, I don't. I don't want to take it as fact, right? right? But there was a thing that he had switched the bodies and got her back and lived with the real body of. Maria until that would have come out when he died because they would have discovered it was a real body. Yeah, but dude, yeah, oh, he ended up. I guess he had a heart attack or something. They found his body three weeks after he died, laying on the floor of his kitchen. Again, there was some one of the some of the things I read said that he was, you know, the the bot that thing was holding him as he died. (laughs) But again, it wasn't enough to say like so many of them didn't have that. That it's more of a rumor, right? Right. Uh, But dude, come on. That's crazy. It's a little much. A little much. (laughs) And men out there wonder why women are terrified of you. This is why you can't let us go even when we're dead. Jesus. Can (laughs) you believe that? So I assume that when I die, that's what you're going to do? Oh, God, no. (laughs) The stink, man. Can you imagine just the horror? Can you imagine the horror on the sister's face when she walks in and sees her sister's body there, just all like kind of deformed looking, too, because it's all waxy right, right, and, and glass eyes and oh nah, gosh no nah. that's terrible there you go and to think of him as a romantic figure that's just even, no. that's the worst part of it all know, like clearly dude. he was ill something no was wrong shit. with him i don't know how they found him mentally competent well because mentally competent to stand trial just means you understand the charges against you it doesn't mean that you're not oh, mentally ill I, okay so you can still have mental illness and, and uh, yeah. be, fa- be found competent for trial. Yes. See, yes. that's a misunderstanding, I would yes. say, that most of the public has. Because if you're found mentally competent, that means there's nothing wrong with you mentally. No, you that can't just pretend means you're like fit you to have stay some trial. illness. And the state will spend 
you know, years. There's been people in mental hospitals for 20 years waiting to be competent to stay in trial. They're, they are medicating and treating these people just to get them competent enough to stand trial. That's insane. So then they get sent to prison. Who's the insane on one? Exactly. Anyway, all right. What do you have for the bizarre story? That was crazy, though, right? That was a crazy story. Oh, okay. Okay. There you go. What so, do you got? So mine, we're going in the future. Okay. <laughs> Ooh, this place is awesome. 2003. It's not so old-timey. There's color. <laughs> There's color. <laughs> All right. So we saw this story recently. 2003? Yes. Okay. And I didn't pay it much mind when it happened, because obviously in 2003, we were adults, and we were aware of things in the news, but I don't really remember this striking me, but this is a strange story, so right here we go. I get you. All right. So it was a regular August afternoon in Erie, Pennsylvania. Until everything changed dramatically. The small city, halfway between Cleveland and Buffalo. Woo woo, Buffalo. <laughs> what, what? <clears throat> sits along Lake Erie and is not known for dramatic national headline grabbing crime. But that's what happened on August 28th, 2003. Brian Wells, a balding 46-year-old pizza delivery man. Can I ask you something? Yes. Does the balding come into play here? Or is that just to be like, here, this is what he looks like? It's just here. This is what okay, he looks awesome. like. It's descriptive for you. I was just taking a little offense. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> he walked into a PNC bank with a short cane in his right hand and a strange bulge around the collar of his T-shirt. Oh. You remember this? Oh, I do. He handed the bank teller a note that read, gather employees with access codes to the vault and work fast to fill a bag with $250,000. You have only 15 minutes. Yep. Then he lifted his shirt to reveal a collar bomb. A heavy box-like device dangling from his neck. The teller told Wells they could not get into the vault at that time, but they filled the bag with as much cash as they had, and it was like $8,700. Wells, appearing relatively casual, grabbed a dumb dumb sucker from the counter and walked out. He hopped into his Geo Metro. Hello, 2003. Geo Metro. <laughs> Holy shit. And drove away. He didn't get far. State troopers nabbed him less than 15 minutes later when they spotted him hanging out next to his car with the dumb, dumb sucker in his mouth. <laughs> what? Okay. So that's when things started to get really weird. Or bizarre, if you will. See, I don't. I just remember the end result part of this. I don't remember much of the lead up. So, well, there's so parts, much. These parts right here already don't make sense because I know where this goes. So, okay, okay it's yeah, it's so crazy. And then we, what we saw was relatively brief, and there's so many more yeah. details involved in it. Wells told the troopers a tale that still has people scratching their heads in wonder. He claims he was out making a pizza delivery and a group of black men, of course they have to be black, right? Jeez. Accosted him. <clears throat> they chained the bomb around his neck at gunpoint and forced him to go rob the bank. Wells pleaded with the officers, it is going to go off. I am not lying. The officers took positions behind their car with their guns drawn while waiting for the bomb squad to arrive. Wells sat on the pavement for 25 minutes. Damn. Media began to arrive to film the bizarre scene. Yep. The device began this. emitting a beeping noise, and Wells starts to try to scoot backwards like he could escape the bomb attached to his neck. The device detonated. Yep. Wells was killed instantly. The bomb squad arrived three minutes later. Damn. Yeah. So then they're trying to put together the puzzle. So that's what doesn't make sense because, like, he was so cool and calm and collected and sucking on dum dums, dude. Like, if you really thought this was legit. Right. You know? Wow. So the police then began searching for clues. What they found was a terrifying escape room scavenger hunt that no one could win. 
The short cane that Wells had at the bank was a homemade gun. The bomb itself was a DIY design and construction, rather ingenious, gen- geniusly, I can't say that. <laughs> uh-huh. The device consisted of two parts, a triple-banded metal collar with four keyholes and a three-digit combination lock and an iron box containing two six-inch pipe bombs loaded with double-base smokeless powder. Jeez. The hinged collar locked around Wells' neck like a giant handcuff. Investigators believe it was built using professional tools. The device also contained two kitchen timers and one electronic countdown timer. It had wires running through it that connected to nothing, decoys to throw off would-be disablers, and stickers bearing deceptive warnings. The contraption was a puzzle all on its own. That is, I feel like this is like jigsaw for you know right, saw. Yes. It feels like a saw thing. This yeah. is fucking insane. When did saw come out? Was this, this didn't inspire this? Did it? I think no. I think no, saw, I think saw, came, saw out came out later. first. Later or first? Before this, this was two thousand three. That's what I'm saying. You don't think saw inspired somebody to do this to the poor guy, do you? Oh, I don't know. Huh. And then came the never. 2000, sorry, two thousand four was saw. Oh, they were close. Oof. All right. And then came the never-ending list of instructions. Inside Wells' car, they found a letter addressed to the bomb hostage. The notes instructed Wells to rob a bank of $250,000 and then follow a set of complex instructions to find keys and combination codes throughout Erie. These notes contained drawings, maps, and threats. The note promised that if Wells did as he was told, he would wind up with keys and a combination to save himself. Failure or disobedience would result in certain death. The note said, There is only one way you can survive, and that is to cooperate completely. In meticulous lettering that would later stymie handwriting analysis, this powerful booby trap bomb can be removed only by following our instructions. Act now, think later, or you will die. In the hours after Wells' death, the cops tried completing the hunt themselves. The first note was straightforward enough. Exit the bank with the money and go to the McDonald's restaurant. Get out of the car, go to the small sign reading drive through open 24 hours in the flower bed. By the sign, there's a rock with a note taped to the bottom. It has your next instructions. Wells drove straight there after he left the bank with the bag of cash. He retrieved a two-page note from the flower bed, which directed him up Peach Street to a wooded area several miles away where a container with orange tape would hold the next set of instructions. Wells was caught before he got to that clue, but the investigators picked up the thread, locating the container with the orange tape in it. They found a note directing them two miles south to a small road sign, where the next clue would be waiting in a jar in the woods. How fast did he think he was going to be able to do all this stuff? Right. I don't know why he was just standing up by the car. Jesus Christ, okay. When they got there, they found the jar, but it was empty. It seemed like whoever had set off this scavenger hunt... Once the police got involved, went to clear out all the rest of the clues. So there was no more that they could follow. Wow. And then, I don't know, this maybe is a reach, but Wells' clothing added another puzzle piece. He died wearing two T-shirts. The outer one had the guest logo on. The pizza place stated he was not wearing that shirt at the time of the delivery, and his family says he did not own that shirt. So the investigators thought that whoever did the collar bomb was taunting them, like, guess who did this? Oh, wow. I don't know if that's real or not. But so the FBI was engaged in a scavenger hunt of its own, one that the collar bomb seemed to have planned as intricately as the one that ensnared Wells. The only question was whether the feds would get any further than Wells had. So they started by looking at Wells' employer, the pizza place. Yeah. 
He was a loyal employee. He's only missed one day in 10 years. So there's no, like, you know, clue there, really. They said that they got a, um, an order came in at 1.30 p.m. for two small pizzas. And that was the end of Wells' shift. But even though it was, he offered to deliver it on his way home. So he left the pizza place at 2 p.m. The delivery location was reachable only by a dirt road. It was a TV transmission tower site in a wooded area off a busy street. So right there, that should have been like, don't deliver pizza. This is fucking weird. Saw, dude. It's literally Saw <laughs> Don't deliver pizza to before, on a dirt road. Before the movie. When investigators combed the area, they found a shoe print matching Wells, entire tracks matching his geo, but no clues as to who lured him there. The next day, a reporter was trying to get like close to the scene, but it was all cordoned off. And he saw a man pacing in front of the home that sat right next to the site. And this is when we meet Bill Rothstein. He's going to be important. Bill Rothstein was a lifelong resident, an unmarried handyman, who appeared at the time to just be a neighbor who offered a journalist a better view into the cordon off crime scene. He didn't seem to know what was going on and he didn't seem to be that interested in it, but he still let the journalist come in and the journalist could go through his backyard and get right up to the crime scene. Then, less than a month later, this same man called 911 reporting that he had a frozen body in his garage freezer. What? <laughs> Rothstein was immediately taken into custody. He reports he hadn't been sure what to do for weeks. He thought about killing himself and stated that he even wrote a suicide note. So as of now, there seems to be two separate incidents. Right, yeah. You're when not thinking about it. When investigators go to their house, go to his house to look at a suicide note, they do find it. But it opens with a curious disclaimer. It starts with, this has nothing to do with the Wells case. What? So then suddenly, people became a little concerned. <laughs> what the shit would you even write that for? Right. What's the point... You want people to look into that and see your whatever it was you constructed. I don't know why he said that. He goes on to say the body in the freezer is Jim Roden and stated he did not kill or participate in his death. Rothstein expressed his apology to those who care for or about me. While in police custody over the next two so, days. Wait, hang on a second. Do we find out who killed that dude then? Yes. Okay. He explained how a dead body ended up in his freezer. He stated that in mid-August... An ex-girlfriend named Marjorie Deal Armstrong, who we will talk about in great detail. Oh, man, this gets crazy, huh? Whom he had dated in the 60s and early 70s, called him and told him she shot her live-in boyfriend, James Roden, hmm. over a dispute about money. She asked for help cleaning up her place and disposing of the body. Rothstein did what she asked. He melted the shotgun she used and spread the pieces around Erie County. He placed the body in the freezer in his garage. <laughs> Planning to grind up the body, but he couldn't go through with it. Oh, my God. He called 911 because he was afraid what his ex might do to him. It seems that Deal Armstrong was well known around Erie for having some, you know, issues. She first drew public attention in 1984 when, at the age of 35, she was charged with murdering her boyfriend, Robert Thomas. Oh, my God. She what the f she claimed she shot him six times in self-defense, and a jury did eventually acquit her. Four years later, her husband, Richard Armstrong, died of a cerebral hemorrhage. The death was ruled accidental, but questions lingered. Armstrong had a head injury when he arrived at the hospital, but the case was never forwarded to any police officer or anything. Wow. Black Widow. So here we are. The day after Rothstein called about the body in his... Garage. Yeah, yeah. Deal Armstrong was arrested for the murder of Jim Roden. In 2005, remember the 
bombing was 2003. Yeah. 2005, she pled guilty but mentally ill. She was sentenced to 7 to 20 years in prison. However, Rothstein died of lymphoma six months before this. Mm. So he never saw her get sentenced or anything. Okay. The federal agents, because it's federal that's investigating the collar bomber. Yeah. So they're not paying attention to the state matter at all. No. About Deal Armstrong. It totally seems unrelated. They're just wondering why he had something in his, his thing. Yeah, that but said even that, I don't even know if that got to them no. or anything. What the fuck? Okay. However, <clears throat> in April of 2005, Deal Armstrong met with a state police officer about another matter. They thought that she could help him be an informant in some, I don't know, murder oh, case Lord. or something. Okay. But during the course of the interview, though, she stated that Rodin's murder had everything to do with the collar bomb plot. What? So the feds quickly descended upon Deal Armstrong. She reported if they could get her a transfer to a prison closer to Erie, she would tell them everything she knew. So here's where we go with this. Mm, well, okay. Okay. So former friends of Deal Armstrong reported that when she was in high school, she was known for intelligence because whoever obviously did this plot was pretty intelligent, creating all this stuff. She possessed a great deal of knowledge of literature, history, and the law. But over the years, she began to show increasing signs of bipolar disorder. Mm. She had symptoms of paranoia, was hypertalkative, and had drastic mood changes. In 1984, after the murder of her boyfriend, investigators found nearly 400 pounds of butter and 700 pounds of cheese, all rotting inside her trashed house. I mean, she's just a Paula Dean fan. <laughs> she's been using Ain't the time. wrong with that. Psychiatrists deemed her mentally incompetent seven times before she was able to stand trial. Holy cow. Okay, there we go. Yeah. Comes into play. Yes. That's the theme, right? Exactly. Competent to stand, stand trial. <laughs> It'll come up again. Don't worry. So she seemed to be the exact type of person, smart, mad, and murderous, who would devise a complicated bank heist. Her narcissistic tendencies would also make it li likely she would be unable to keep, keep such a scheme to herself. Deal Armstrong said she wasn't involved in the plot, but was aware of it. This is what she was telling federal investigators. She supplied some of the items and was less than a mile away during the bank robbery. She stated that Rothstein and the pizza guy were involved. So this is the first time we're hearing that the victim may have been a conspirator. That's why I was thinking like he was all, ch I don't know, but there's a whole game that's involved. Like, yeah, okay, go on. She claimed that Rothstein was the mastermind. Even while she was claiming she was not part of the plot, the federal investigators were talking to others, interviewing four separate informants who stated that Deal Armstrong talked about the plot in intimate details. Wow. Later, in late 2005, another witness came forward, a crack dealer named Kenneth Barnes, who was, he said he was also involved. Barnes, an old fishing buddy of Deal Armstrong, had been talking too freely about the plot, and his brother-in-law turned him in while he was serving time for a drug charge. So the Barnes is in jail for a drug charge, and his brother-in-law is like, hey, he keeps talking about this. Yeah. I think he's involved. Barnes agreed to a deal with the feds. He would tell them everything he knew for a reduced sentence. Barnes confirmed what the Fed suspected, that Deal Armstrong was the masterman behind the plan. She wanted the cash so she could pay Barnes to kill her father. She was worried he was blowing through her inheritance. Oh, So that's what this is all about, according to Barnes. God. Barnes insisted he was kept in the dark about some aspects of the plan, but even with the holes, much of his account corroborated with what the agents had already heard. So they're putting all this together. 
So in February now, 2006, agents told Deal Armstrong that they had enough for an indictment against her, and she became enraged, slamming her fist on the table and screaming out her attorney. However, she's still talking to the investigators. She even offers to go with them in the car around Erie to point out where she was during all the parts of the bank robbery and scavenger hunt. She admitted to being at several locations linked to the crime that same day, like the McDonald's. At the end of the drive, but then she shuts down at the end of the drive. She's like, I'm not going to provide any more information until you give me a a letter of immunity. Uh, But they already got everything they needed, so they didn't care. She's done. Wow, I didn't know they found out who it was. In July of 2007, nearly four years after the plot was carried out, the U.S. attorney announced the case was over. That deal Armstrong and Barnes had been charged. Rothstein and Wells, the purported victim, were also involved, but because they were both dead, they're just unindicted conspirators. Do you really feel like Wells was involved? I feel like maybe they caught a fucking pizza delivery guy at their place and <laughs> held him up and made him do all this shit. Because again, why, why go through the, the all of it? Like, just have it look like a bomb and be it. Why did it actually have to be a real bomb? Well, what was the point to the, the whole thing? The feds maintained that Wells was in on it, thinking the collar <laughs> bomb was a fake. But still, the whole point is, is there's all of this other pieces to a puzzle for him to follow. I don't think he they, was in on it. They said the scavenger hunt was supposed to be a ruse to fool the cops. But at some point, Wells went from being a planner to an unwilling participant. He realized he was double-crossed and the bomb was real. While they're announcing this, the U.S. attorney, Wells' family, is in the press section screaming liar over and over again. So clearly they didn't agree with this assessment. But many people in Erie were not satisfied with the Fed's conclusion of the case. It left more questions than answers. Like, how did Wells, the pizza man who has this impeccable record, get involved? And could Deal Armstrong, with her severe mental illness, really mastermind such a plot? The feds also announced a week later that the entire scavenger hunt was fake and the bomb would have gone off regardless. I don't know. Yes. I feel like he was not a part of this. So Barnes pleaded guilty and he agreed to testify against Deal Armstrong. He was sentenced to 45 years but hoped that his testimony would reduce his sentence. Deal Armstrong's trial was hopefully going to clear up some of the remaining unanswered questions. But these answers would have to wait because Deal Armstrong was deemed mentally unfit to stand trial at first. When she was finally deemed competent, she was diagnosed with cancer and trial was postponed while she waited for her prognosis. Despite doctors telling her she only had three to seven years to live, prosecutors decided to start the trial. So on day five of the trial, this is October 2008 now, Barnes took the stand. He said Deal Armstrong devised the plan and lured in a few conspirators. Wells, the quiet pizza delivery man, needed the money because, according to Barnes, he had a relationship with a prostitute. (laughs) With the help of Barnes, Wells... Oh, God, Wells, you're breaking my heart, kid. (laughs) Wells would buy crack to exchange to the prostitute for sex. Oh, God, Wells. He fell into debt with the crack dealers and needed help. It was only the day he dropped off the pizzas that he realized he had been double-crossed and tried to run. He was tackled to the ground, and the collar was put on at gunpoint. (sighs) Throughout his testimony, Deal Armstrong would angrily whisper to attorney, and she even blurted out liar a few times. (laughs) Judge is trying to keep her quiet. So that's why they say that Wells got involved. Wow. But if he knew then, like what you're saying, if he knew, if he realized he was double-crossed when he went to deliver those pizzas, then why was he still acting so calm, grabbing the dum-dum? Like, I don't get that. Oh, man. The eighth day of trial, October 26th, oddly enough, 
Deal Armstrong took the stand in her defense. She is untreated bipolar disorder. This had to be a disaster. It sounds like you it was know a you want to read that transcript. Disa- I can't even. I, it would just be torturous. <laughs> like here's some of it. She would ridicule her lawyer, yell at the prosecutor. The judge tried to cut her off more than fifty times. During her first day on the stand, she mentioned Brian Wells only once in the final ten minutes of a nearly one hundred minute long diatribe. <laughs> I never met Brian Wells. I never knew Brian Wells. Never. I became aware of him the day that he died. I saw it on the news. Can you imagine 100 minutes nonstop talking during a trial? <laughs> but she didn't convince the jury. They deliberated, <laughs> deliberated for 11 hours but returned guilty verdicts. Let me ask you something. Counts. Like, what are you doing when you're watching that go down, right? Like, five minutes in and she's still going and you're like, all right, whatever. But, like, 15 minutes, you're I like, okay. And the judge keeps trying to stop. And I was going to say, not. and I. And now you're hitting 30 minutes. And now are people really looking at their watches going, all right, let's see how long this goes. Like, who starts putting bets down? It's a manic person. You can't stop them Good no matter what Lord. you do. Like, it's crazy. So she was sentenced to life in prison plus 30 extra years, I guess, just to be sure. And she died. Yeah, because life isn't like till you're dead. Life is a certain amount of numbers, right? It depends. It's like 60 something parole, years yeah. or something. She died of breast cancer in April 2017 while serving her sentence at a federal prison in Texas. Mm. So although the case is seemingly closed and the questions have been answered, not everyone believed the conclusion. There's like an FBI, he's a former FBI profiler and he's really um, adamant and outspoken about how he does not think it was Deal Armstrong. He believes it was Rothstein that was the mastermind. He just doesn't think that she could have, you know, she wasn't very educated. She clearly had bipolar so, but so many people involved in the plot are now dead. We're yeah. never going to really know. That's crazy. I was wrong. Life sentence is your lifetime, right. your life term. What is the point to the extra? Just to be like, this is how fucked you are. <laughs> I guess. Like there's no turning back I ever. I mean, because it depends. It's a federal chart. It's a federal life prison. So there's always a possibility of parole maybe. So the extra 30 years was just be like, okay, there's no parole. I don't know. They also knew she was going to die in three to seven years. So. I that, it's uh it's insane it's a crazy story that is cra- i remember the collar thing i remember him being on the news and i've seen it you know in one of the in those kinds of uh most shocking videos or whatever you know i've seen the story itself but holy crap all of this other stuff i don't remember any of this no stuff. and wow. apparently during my research i learned that there is a documentary about this on netflix how come i'm always learning about this as i'm doing research so oh my god it's called pizza something i think Pizza guy. <laughs> Poor pizza guy. Oh, man. I don't know. Uh, but and then the retired FBI profiler who doesn't think that she did it, his thing is to motivate the crime. Like, her motivation for this crime was money. And he said, whoever did this, it wasn't about money, obviously. It was about notoriety and, like, being that kind of person. fucked up, That's dude. why he thinks it was Rothstein, because he kind of had that. I looked up to see if if the the Saw movie was inspired by this kind of a thing, and I didn't see anything at all. But I just it sounds so much like that's how fucked. I I can't not you know what I mean. I feel like the guy who did write Saw had, had to, to have, have seen, seen this, this in the news, news. Yes. and like it just became this like underlying imprint that you know maybe he doesn't remember, but it had to have some sort of influence because it's, this is insane. And it's just like Erie, which is just like an hour away, and it's such wow. a little. Wow. <laughs> It's so crazy that this happened there. Wow. There you go, guys. Yeah. That's some bizarre stories. Yeah, they're both very bizarre. There you go. Hope you guys enjoyed another episode of How Bizarre. 
uh, head over to our Facebook page, uh, the History Creeps Facebook page. All of our newest episodes of How Bizarre, That's Odd, and History Creeps are posted there, as well as, uh, you know, once in a while we'll post other announcements like Patreon coming soon. Keep an eye out. Uh, anyway, thanks so much for listening. You have anything else? You done? I am done. All I right. am ready for bed. Good Same night, everyone. Here. So, uh, for Aaron Chavez, this is Chris Chavez. Thanks so much for listening. Hit the lights on the way out of the Creeper Clubhouse. And as always, when life throws you something bizarre, you say, How bizarre? <laughs> <laughs>